Hey guys, thanks for tuning into the podcast, OCD Straight Talk with Chris Lines, licensed psychotherapist and anxiety disorders and OCD spectrum disorders treatment specialist, reaching out to you from Minnesota's Twin Cities, home of the microbrew. Welcome to the very first full episode of OCD Straight Talk. Quick disclaimer, this is a podcast and is only a podcast. It's an educational talk on OCD and the anxiety disorders. What it is not is psychotherapy. It's not designed to be consumed in lieu of evidence-based psychotherapeutic intervention or to stand in place of medical advice. As a licensed therapist and treatment specialist, I'm aware that pervasive throughout the general population are individuals who are seeking treatment for disordered anxiety, but not making the meaningful progress for which they are hoping and working. Well, this podcast is for you. It's designed to provide information and psychoeducation regarding the symptom functionality and effective treatment of the anxiety-related disorders, but again, it's, it's merely a podcast. It's not designed to stand um, uh, in place of evidence-based intervention. Okay, so that said, let me ask you a question. How much money have you spent over the, the months or the years for the decisive treatment of your anxiety disorder? Well, you say, uh, I've got insurance, so I don't pay anything, or you know, my copay is like 20 bucks or whatever, so not much. But another way to, to get at the same point is by asking not about money, but about time. How many sessions over the course of how many months, or in some cases, how many therapists have you seen on your journey toward getting better? As I mentioned in the last podcast, a troubling theme has emerged that some of the individuals who are presenting for treatment these days have presented for treatment before. They've engaged one form or another of psychotherapeutic intervention, but have not found it to be meaningfully helpful toward the effective reduction of their symptom severity. I can't possibly tell you how many dozens upon dozens of cases have started with the telling of that story. I tried therapy in high school and it helped at first, but then my anxiety just ended up coming back or I've been in and out of therapy for years and nothing really ever seems to help. So this starts to unearth a question that we'll seek to answer in the episode. Why? Why are people spending so many dollars over the course of so very many sessions for relief from their anxiety. Now, please don't misunderstand the question. What I'm not asking is why is, why is relief something after which people are chasing so hard? No, what I'm asking is why is relief something that for many people is so elusive? Or why are so many people suffering for so very long with clinically significant anxiety despite going to treatment? Now, the answer to that question is both straightforward and complicated. It's both one-dimensional, and multifaceted. That's code talk for by the end of this episode, there's probably going to be more to say. But over the following minutes, I'll do my best to present something of a cohesive explanation. So let's begin with, with this. Any clinician who has a working knowledge of the symptom functionality of OCD can effectively treat any anxiety disorder. But any anxiety disorder that presents with an OCD-like symptom dimension, is going to beat almost any clinician. Now, maybe that feels like a bit of a mind-bender or whatever, and we'll get into it, but but for now, I'm going to let you in on a sort of a secret of the profession, right? a trick of the trade. The most empirically supported intervention for each of the anxiety-related disorders is one variation or another of the same treatment. Now, when you say, what is it? It's exposure therapy, but that's not the secret. Right, exposure therapy goes back at least to 1966 with Victor Myers 
breakthrough study on the modification of obsessive rituals. The study was published in what at the time was a relatively new peer-reviewed scientific journal called Behavior Research and Therapy. They're still publishing new data today. Only now, in 2020, there's almost six decades of outcome data and thousands of research studies and case analyses associated with the treatment of OCD and the anxiety disorders. And all of it, or at least much of it, is available to the general public. Exposure therapy is not a secret. So what's the secret? Well, what does it tell you about the obsessive-compulsive symptom dimensions, about the general functionality of the anxiety disorders? If the treatment for each and all of them is largely the same psychobehavioral intervention, well, it tells you that each of them functions largely the same way symptomatologically, that there's more overlap, maybe a lot more, than meaningful differences between the majority of these conditions. It means that all of the anxiety-related disorders, perhaps with PTSD as the singular outlier, look fundamentally like an obsessive-compulsive symptom presentation. The symptom dimensions for social anxiety, specific phobia, or panic-related anxiety, or obsessive-compulsive anxiety, or generalized anxiety, body dysmorphic anxiety, or disordered eating, they're, they're fundamentally the same face with largely overlapping symptom dynamics across diagnostic categories. The, the, the clearly distinguishing factors of these being the specific fear topics within the respective categories. Now, this kind of blanket comparison is admittedly a bit loose. There are, of course, some very meaningful diagnostic parameters to be drawn around, for example, panic disorder in contradistinction to OCD. Or hypochondriasis, a now archaic term replaced by health anxiety, comparative to something like social anxiety disorder. But that's just the point. When we take a careful look at the various anxiety-related disorders across their respective spectrums, and looking especially from the perspective of how these conditions function, what we see is that they have a lot more in common than not. Well, you say, what do they have in common? Well, the first and most obvious symptomatological overlap between these conditions is the emotionality that seems to drive them all. Anxiety, right? I mean, all of these are anxiety-related problems. Well, yeah, well, well, what else? Well, where there's smoke, there's fire. And, and by the way, it's not the, the smoke that's causing the fire. It's generally a pretty safe bet that there's a fire somewhere causing the smoke. And where there's anxiety, there's very, very usually some kind of unwanted, intrusive thought causing it. You say, well, hold on a second. It sounds like you're describing obsessions. I don't, I don't have obsessions. No, I'm just, I'm just anxious about the next panic attack. Well, that makes sense. But the anxiety you're feeling, the, the panic attacks that you're having, they're, they're not occurring in a vacuum. They're not just randomly taking place. But the anxiety that you're experiencing in general, the panic attacks in particular, they're rooted in mental images or word cognitions, like rapid-fire scary predictions about the next panic attack. Like, where will it happen? Or, or when will it happen? And whether a certain body sensation is a signal that one's starting right now. Or, or maybe you say, well, you're talking about panic attacks, and see, I don't get panic attacks. I'm really anxious about... Uh, you know, social situations, or I'm terrified, you know, of, of heights or, or spiders, um, or I've always been pretty perfectionistic about following the rules, um, you know, something like this. But, but yeah, I don't, I don't get panic attacks. I don't think we're, we're talking about the same thing. Well, maybe we're not. 
I mean, you're the expert of your situation, right? Not me. But it's generally a pretty safe bet that where you find clinically significant anxiety, there you will also find these rapid-fire scary predictions, or what the professional literature is going to call intrusive thoughts. Well, in any case, the idea that thoughts underlie or cause emotions is not novel. It is certainly not being introduced with this podcast. The idea goes back at least to the 70s and stands as one of the basic premises of Aaron Beck's cognitive therapy. By this point in time, the relationship between thoughts and emotions and behaviors too, for that matter, has been so exhaustively documented as to be understood and accepted by nearly everyone in the clinical community. Now, it's true that some people really struggle to find or identify a specific sort of cognitive culprit when they're feeling really, really anxious. I've worked with many such individuals myself. For them, it's like their anxiety just sort of ambushes them and out of seemingly nowhere and for seemingly no reason, they just start feeling really, really nervous or anxious. But yeah, the vast majority of even these individuals can eventually identify a specific thought in a given moment as the reason they're feeling anxious. Okay, so a quick recap. Everyone suffering from an anxiety-related disorder experiences clinically significant anxiety. Well, yep. And in the vast majority of such cases, that anxiety can be traced not merely to a situation in and of itself, but to an identifiable group or stream of intrusive thoughts within the context of or, or that tend to occur within a situation. So to this point, I've worked to show you that everyone suffering from one of the anxiety-related disorders has, if you will, obsessions, clinically significant anxieties dictated by anxiety-producing thoughts. These are not easily ignored or pushed away, hence the professional literature will call them intrusive thoughts. Okay, well, that raises the next question. Can I show you that everyone who suffers from an anxiety-related disorder also engages in compulsive patterns, or sometimes more generally called safety behaviors? Well, the answer is, yeah, I think I can. And I think I can because it's natural to try to protect ourselves when we perceive a threat, right? I mean, that makes sense. It's it's adaptive human behavior. For example, if a tornado touches down a half mile from the typical person, he or she is going to seek immediate shelter. That behavior is considered adaptive or healthy, even if even if the person only thinks there's a tornado in the area, right? The counterintuitive or quite unnatural response would be to do nothing, right? To do nothing in the face of even a perceived threat runs against the grain of your natural instinct. The trouble is that when it comes to the the symptom dynamic of the anxiety-related disorders, it's the intuitive, if you will, the natural response that tends to keep the symptom presentation going. Let me give you another example. Let's imagine you get bitten by a mosquito or develop a case of poison ivy. It won't be long before you notice an itch. What's the first thing any one of us will instinctively do when we notice an itch? We're going to scratch it and it'll feel better. But then what's going to happen? That same itch will come back like one of those trick candles that you blow out and, and it just lights up again or whatever. So, you'll scratch the bite again and a kind of cycle emerges. The more you scratch that bite, the more it itches and the more it itches, the more you're going to scratch the bite. The punchline is the more you scratch, the more it fuels the itch. 
the itching sensation and the scratching behavior start to sort of form a symbiotic relationship. One serves the other while the other necessitates the one. And together they act as a sort of self-perpetuating system. Whether you think about it this way or not, you start to participate in the very ongoing itch of which you wish to be rid. Well, this is, this is a picture of the anxiety-related disorders. We engage behaviors that within our specific fear contexts make good sense. At least they seem to. But they eventually come to serve as the very safety mechanisms, if you will, that keep our fears loud and strong. Right? Victor Meyer's study, now almost 60 years old, demonstrates the irony of the symptom set that the behaviors we instinctively engage to dismiss our intrusive thoughts and corresponding anxiety instead only perpetuate and fuel them. Well, there it is. Everyone suffering from an anxiety-related disorder presents with clinically significant anxiety that is caused by intrusive thoughts of one form or another and engages behavioral safety mechanisms that are intended to regulate the intensity of our psychoemotive symptoms while only succeeding to exacerbate them. So, what are your compulsive patterns? What are your behavioral safety mechanisms? Well, don't ask me. I, I can't tell you what they are, right? This is a podcast. It's not therapy. But maybe for you, they're avoidance patterns or, or reassurance seeking from a loved one or a physician. Maybe they're, they're one form or another of checking. These are all pretty common kind of frequent flyer compulsions, and, and we see them all the time, no matter what the diagnostic label of the anxiety-related problem. But I'll tell you this. Compulsions breed compulsions. If you're actively engaging one compulsion or safety behavior as your sort of go-to pattern, you probably have two or three or ten others hiding from you in plain sight. Problem is... They're each and equally all fueling the anxiety system. You can't just stop one. You have to stop them all to get better. Good anxiety treatment is going to, to be about differentiating between the symptoms you can control and the symptoms you can't. Recognizing that safety behaviors or compulsions are, at the end of the day, choices. Forcibly stopping all compulsions and doing your exposure work with your therapist will spell the difference between making progress and spinning your wheels in a snowstorm. This brings us back to the beginning. Why are so many people finding that despite going to treatment, they continue to suffer from clinically significant anxiety presentations? Or why is it that so many people find psychotherapy to be ineffective? The answer is that they're still scratching their mosquito bite. They're still engaging their compulsive patterns. From this perspective, it's not incorrect to say your anxiety disorder is not happening to you, but you're, you're happening to your anxiety disorder. Well, that does it for us in our first episode. Thanks for tuning in to OCD Straight Talk.